The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. A reading from selected verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. My name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I do want to add my welcome uh, to that of Brian's. We are glad that you are here this morning. Whether you are a longtime member or a first-time visitor, we're glad you're here, and we trust the Lord will bless your time with us. Before we study this passage, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on it. And before we even do that, I just want to share with you again a quote that I've shared with you before, but 250 years ago, uh, John Newton said this, John Newton, the the converted slave trader and ship's captain, the, the pastor, the writer of many hymns, not the least of which is Amazing Grace, he writes this on the gift of Scripture and the importance of Scripture. He said, if we wander from Scripture... In pursuit either of present peace or future hope, our search will always end in disappointment. Let us uh, not be those who wander, but instead draw near, and let's pray now and ask God to use his word. Father, that truly is our heart's desire, that we would not wander from your word. Instead, we would draw near to it and to you, that we would cherish your word, Lord, for you tell us that it's living and active, that it can penetrate our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would use it this morning as you've used it for generation upon generation. Use it to bring conviction to our hearts where there is sin. Use it to bring encouragement to our hearts in the gospel. Use it, Lord, that we might grow in grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thou shalt not steal. I was thinking about this upcoming sermon for about the last 10 days. Thinking about this particular command and 
and its impact on me. And I would start by confessing that many years ago, my grandmother saved me from a life of crime. I was five years old. We were at Woolworths. How many of y'all even remember Woolworths? Yeah, I was at Woolworths. If you don't remember Woolworths, think, I was asking the staff this morning, like, what would be the equivalent? And they said, well, just call it a five and dime. And I'm like, that's not helpful if you weren't around during Woolworths. Think of the Farallon Pharmacy where you can buy just about anything, but only a little bit of it. Think about that and then add a long lunch counter to it where you sit on padded chrome stools and you can spin around on those stools while you eat ice cream. That's what Woolworths was like. You could buy almost anything, a small selection of food or toys or clothes or household items. My grandmother took me to Woolworths. We were uh, there to shop for whatever it was she needed and she was wandering around doing what she needed and she left me on the toy aisle when all of a sudden I spotted a little red Super Bowl just like this. Y'all remember these? incredible little things that bounce so high. I asked my grandmother to buy it for me. I think it only cost a nickel, but she declined for reasons that I did not understand, nor did I, dis- did I agree with. So while she wasn't looking, I took the little red Super Bowl and I did what we call, we politely call, put the five finger discount on it, you know, which means I stole it and I put it in my pocket. We got out uh, of the store, we checked out, we got out of the store and I foolishly pulled the little red Super Bowl out of my pocket thinking she would not see it because I was in the back seat, but she saw it and she made me go back in and ask for the manager and tell the manager what I had done and apologize and return my precious little red Super Bowl. Hence my grandmother saved me from a life of crime. 16 years later, I'm at the end of college. I'm in Knoxville. The the World's Fair had just started in 1982, and I wanted a job. I had a a few months to cover, and I wanted a job that was indoors and air-conditioned. So I applied for a job at Elson's Gift Shop in the Hyatt Regency in Knoxville, and part of the process was they required you to take a polygraph. Yeah. I'd never taken a polygraph before. I've never taken one since. But I sat in this chair with all these leads attached to me, and I have to admit, I was nervous. And the guy started asking these preliminary questions. Is your name Frank Hitch? All this. He said, I got to get a baseline, whatever that was. And then the question started getting more serious until the question came, have you ever stolen anything? And I calmly, calmly answered, No. But when I said it, I remembered the little red Super Bowl. And the polygrapher paused and he asked the question again very slowly, have you ever stolen anything? I think he thought he had caught a master criminal before he could do damage to the gift shop. And I said, can you turn that off for a second and let me explain, and he did. And I told him the story of the little red Super Bowl, and then he turned the machine back on and he said this. He said, other than the incident with the little red Super Bowl, <laughs> have you ever stolen anything? And I said, no, and I passed. <laughs> I tell you that story 
because many of us might have a similar response if we were to be polygraphed this morning. When I was reading this past week, I read a survey from the Barna Research Group. The survey found that 86% of adults in the United States claim they have completely satisfied God's requirement of not stealing. 86%. I was stunned by that, but I was more stunned by 91% of evangelical Christians claim they have kept this command. Now, you would think the number would be different. You'd think it would be the other way around, that the average American would say, yes, I've kept it, but the evangelicals, the Christians who are supposed to know our hearts, would say, no, I have not kept it. And the number would be less, but it's actually higher. Apparently, we think this commandment, thou shalt not steal, is a great word to robbers and thieves, but it has very little relevance to good church-going people. What we've already seen, though, this morning in the Heidelberg Catechism is that breaking this commandment involves, or that not breaking this commandment involves far more than simply not stealing stuff that doesn't belong to us. Could it be that our understanding of this commandment, could it be that our definitions of sin are not the same, not the same at all, not in line with God's? Well, before we come to the table, let's look at our our text together, look at your outline, and we're going to quickly cover these points. First, the rationale behind the commandment. Now, occasionally, and you may have heard this too, I hear people say to me, Christians say to me, how they long for a return to the early days of the church. The New Testament church in its early days, the way they read Acts 2, people didn't own anything, people just shared everything. But that's not what Acts 2 actually says. It says people sold some of what they owned so they could give to those in need. Acts 2 has this picture of generosity in it, not a condemnation of ownership. I'll say it again. It's a picture of generosity, not a condemnation of ownership. Property ownership is not condemned in the Scriptures. In fact, if you think about it, the the very prohibition of theft, it presupposes that there's a right to ownership. If you're taking notes, uh, write down Exodus 22. We don't have time to go there this morning, but there's all kinds of property laws regulating the theft of someone's personal property there. I love how Philip Ryken addresses uh, this issue of biblical ownership among Christians. He's so right. He says this, ownership is not possessing things to use for our own purposes but receiving things from God to use for his glory. So at the same time that we're forbidden, he says, to take things that don't belong to us, we're also required to use what we have in ways that are pleasing to our God. And he ends with this. To put it very simply, the eighth commandment isn't just about stealing, it's also about stewardship. I think he's right. I think that's what the writers of the catechism have understood also. I think that's what scripture teaches. It's not just about stealing, it's about stewardship. The rationale behind this commandment weds the gift of ownership to the responsibilities of stewardship. 
That's what's underneath this. Think about the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. They're, they're put in this idyllic place and basically told, all this is for you, except that tree. All this is for you, now steward it well. So there's the rationale. Let's talk about the meaning. This is where we'll spend most of our time. The meaning of the commandment. We're gonna look at it negatively and positively. There's a, there's a prohibition here and there's also an encouragement here. Negatively, God says, do not take what belongs to others. Positively, he's calling us to delight in sharing what he's entrusted to us and sharing it with others who are in need. Let's look at the prohibition a little deeper first. The Hebrew word here uh, that's used for stealing literally means to carry something away with stealth. To do it with stealth, like me and my little red Super Bowl. You should have seen how smooth I was getting that into my pocket. So it seems like what he's forbidding is really quite simple here, but it's easy to miss the full meaning. Again, if you, if you look in your uh, bulletin, the Heidelberg Catechism is so helpful, it takes all that Scripture teaches and tries to put it into this one little paragraph. What is he forbidding? Not only, we read, not only outright theft and robbery, but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money, Usury, which is just a word meaning excessive interest. He says we must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. I don't know how many of you will remember this picture. I was not around when this picture was first published. It was published in 1936 in the Saturday Evening Post by an artist named Leslie Thrasher. Uh, Leslie's works look a whole lot like Norman Rockwell's work. They were friends. And, and this particular picture on the cover depicts this woman buying a turkey at a local butcher shop. The turkey is up on this scale being weighed above this counter and the numbers on the scale are higher up and it's being weighed to determine the price that the butcher will charge for the turkey. And behind the counter, there's this jolly looking older butcher, about 70 years old. He's got an apron on and a hat and glasses. And on the other side of the counter is this very respectable looking woman, also around 70 years old. And both of them have this very pleased look on their faces and this very faint smile. They're both looking up at the scale, but there's something else going on in the picture. The butcher is gently pressing down on the scale so that it will show that it weighs more so he can charge more, and the little lady is pushing up on the scale so it will weigh less and she will pay less. And the reason they both look so pleased is because neither one knows what the other's doing. It's a charming picture of American life, but what's really happening in the picture is they're both violating the Eighth Commandment. They're practicing deception of the other for their own personal gain. Cecil Myers was a, I think he was a Methodist pastor in Atlanta for many, many years. He wrote on this picture, and this is what he said. He said, both the butcher and the lovely lady would resent being called thieves, the lovely lady would never rob a bank or steal a car. The butcher would be indignant if anyone accused him of stealing, but neither saw anything wrong with a little deception 
that would make a few cents more for one or save a few cents for the other. Nobody saw anything wrong with a little deception. But God says we're not to scheme or defraud anyone or steal anything, and it doesn't matter whether it's the weight of a turkey or a super ball. So think about what would be prohibited, like a representative list of this. Let me just go through a few things. Obviously, outright theft and robbery would be for, for, uh, forbidden. Speaking of which, even like think of Malachi 3 where God says, you're robbing me. My people are robbing me because they're not tithing. That would be included. Inaccurate measurements like Leslie Thrasher's picture. Fraudulent merchandise as the catechism talks about. Merchandise that claims it does something that it does not or claims it is something that it is not. Cheating on our taxes. Charging excessive interest. Cheating our employees, not treating them fairly. The book of James, uh, in James chapter 4, James says this. He says, look, he's talking to the wealthy. The, the wages that you fail to pay the workmen who mold, mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. When we don't treat our employees right, we're violating this commandment. I was, in my 20s, I worked for a, a large, now it's a $50 billion company. It wasn't back then. But we were opening 100 stores a year and the design uh, department, I was the financial controller in this design department. And I was told by my boss to make sure that all our field folks that were, helping the, that were overseeing the oversight or the, uh, the construction of these stores to take every painting invoice we got and to make sure we discounted it by 10% somehow, find something wrong with what they've done and discount it by 10%. It makes a huge difference when you're opening 100 stores a year. And then he said this, if the little contractor doesn't like it, let him sue us. We have attorneys on staff looking for something to do. That's violating the Eighth Commandment. But not just cheating employees, how about cheating employers? When we falsify time cards or waste time on the job that we're supposed to be on the clock working, we're violating the commandment. When we're acquiring things unrighteously through war or through deceit, think of Russia and the Ukraine. Think of the deceit of King Ahab. Remember the story King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, this beautiful vineyard. He wanted it, but Naboth, it belonged in his family for many, many years, and he didn't want to sell it to the king. So what did the king do? The king had him falsely accused of something and had him executed so he could steal the vineyard. We don't do that, but we pad expense reports. After all, they don't, they don't pay me like they should. Plagiarism would be a violation. Pirating. I read this week, I was stunned by this. The most pirated movie of 2004 was The Passion of the Christ. I'm not thinking non-Christians were pirating it. Predatory lending, predatory borrowing. 70% of the defaults, real estate defaults in 2008 and 2009 turned out to have false information on their loan applications. The list just goes on and on, but here's the point. If you're taking notes, here's the point. 
Stealing is a sin against God in at least two ways. It's a failure to trust God for his provision and it's, assault, it's an assault of God's provision for others. Say it again, it's a failure to trust God in his provision for us and an assault on God's provision for others. That's the negative side. What about the positive side? What's he calling us to positively? Simply this, he's calling us to have a spirit that delights in sharing with what God has entrusted us, sharing all that with others who are in need. I love, again, the Heidelberg Catechism. What does he require? That I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. That I treat others as I would like them to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. When I was thinking about that this week, it's like, does that really describe me? Does that describe us? To do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. I actually was thinking about this yesterday afternoon. I, I cut the grass yesterday afternoon for the first time and my mower's not working right. And you know how sometimes when you push a mower and the grass bag's just like leaving a trail of grass behind it? But it was really not on my property or in my uh, street ahead of me. It was kind of more in front of my new neighbor's house. And I was thinking, it, at first I was thinking, you know, that's in front of his house, not my house. You know, as opposed to, how about go get the blower and clean it up? Treat my neighbor the way I want to be treated. Paul says this, and he's writing to the Ephesians. He's writing about what does it mean to be a child of the living God? What will our lives look like? And he has this list of things that we'll do and that we don't do. And then he ends with this admonition. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He didn't say so that he might provide for himself and be self-reliant. He says so that he may share. So, you see, keeping this command involves so much more than simply not taking stuff that doesn't belong to us. It involves stewarding well all that God's entrusted to us. It involves having a spirit that really does delight in sharing with others in need. It involves cultivating a spirit of generosity. I love the way Kent Hughes said it. He said, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. And then he has this phrase, perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. Perpetual generosity is a de-deification of money. Perpetual generosity, does that mark our lives? Jerry Bridges, who's actually been here, he spoke here many years ago. I believe he's passed away now. Jerry Bridges used to say that we have three basic attitudes uh, towards our possessions in life. The first attitude is this, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. And the second is, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. And the third is, what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. He goes on when he's talking about, and he's writing about those things to say that, that obviously the first one, all Christians know that's wrong. What yours is mine, and I'll take it. We know that's wrong. We violate it in subtle ways that we convince ourselves we haven't violated it. 
But he says that most Christians live with the mindset of what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. Not with the mindset of what's mine is God's and I'm happy to share it. Which attitude best describes your heart and my heart this morning is the question. We need to wrap up. We've seen the rationale. We've seen the meaning of the commandment. So what's the hope for those of us who know now that we've broken this commandment? It's pretty clear, I hope, that our superficial understanding of this commandment, it might allow us to pass a polygraph like I did many years ago. But we've all broken it in a myriad of ways. So where's our hope found? In whom is our hope found? Well, we all know this. The answer is found in Jesus. It's found in the innocent one, the Son of God who hung on a cross, interestingly, between two thieves. One thief who says to him mockingly, says, if you're really the Christ, then save yourself and save us. And the other who confessed his sin and asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And Jesus replied, this day you'll be with me in paradise. When Christ died on the cross, he died for thieves, thieves like you and me, so that every thief who trusts in him will be saved. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel for us. And when that gospel truth, when that permeates our hearts, we'll be simultaneously saddened and gladdened to see our sin afresh so that we can come to him for cleansing and renewal for things that we did not see as sin before. And by his grace, by his grace, our lives will be increasingly marked, not just by a commitment not to take things that don't belong to us, but also by a commitment to take great delight in sharing what God has entrusted to us. Let's pray together. Father, that term, perpetual generosity, it rings with our hearts. Lord, we want it to mark our lives. We want to be a people who, who are understanding of our sin, who are understanding of the ways in which we break your law because it makes us treasure the gospel. It makes us treasure Jesus even more. So we do pray, Lord, that you would show us our hearts Show us the ways in which we have not lived with perpetual generosity. And Lord, whether it be playing with the scales while weighing a turkey or taking a Super Bowl or office supplies from our work, help us to see it for what it really is. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the table to which we're about to come, Lord, for his gift of his life in place of ours, for the gift of his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. And we thank you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.